We also uh, began a new series of teaching uh, messages last weekend. I know a lot of you weren't here because of the Memorial Day weekend, so I'm going to recap just a, a briefly. It's a new series called Set Free, and it's a series that we're going to be doing throughout the summer months on the New Testament book of Galatians. Now, the writer of this New Testament book is the Apostle Paul, and he uses some words in, this, uh, in the text of Galatians that I'm not sure that all of us would be on board with, especially if we've not grown up in the church. Um, and we do have lots of folks who come from um, uh, lots of different church backgrounds. So we kind of are doing the word of the day, sometimes two words, uh, until we kind of go through some of the, um, the key words that he uses in this, in this uh, letter to the Galatian church. Last week, I'm going to recap quickly last week, and there will be a quiz in a couple of weeks, so pay close attention. Um, Now, last week we talked about the word gospel, and the word gospel just simply refers to the teachings of Jesus and the early apostles. It's the Christian story. It's regarded as something that's true, something that needs to be believed. It's the interchangeable word that we hear sometimes is called good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, the good news about salvation and the kingdom of God. The other word we talked about last week was Judaizer. This was a a term for first century Christians who insisted uh, that the non-Jews, the Gentile uh, believers, had to convert to Judaism or at least practice Uh, the same kinds of things that the Jews had to practice from the Old Testament law, things like feast days and dietary provisions and so forth. So we're going to hear that word used again today. Um, But we have two new words for you today. The first one is the word conversion. And conversion is a miracle that happens when God's life intersects with our life. And it just simply means to be radically changed, to be transformed, to have our lives turned around in a new direction. The other word is justified, to be reconciled with God, to be redeemed, restored, converted, uh, declared righteous in the sight of God. God's, it's God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of our sin, while at the same time declaring us righteous before God. Now, the reason that the Apostle Paul wrote these letters to the Galatian church was because of the Judaizers who were trying to take away the freedom that these new Christians found in Christ Jesus. And so he's writing to refute their teaching. So I'm going to encourage you to keep reading the book for yourself. Um, The book of Galatians, only six chapters long, so read it, and it'll take you a short time to read it, so read it multiple times, do some study on your own. And I think this whole series this summer will have a lot more meaning uh, for you if you'll take time to do that. Let's bow in a word of prayer, shall we? God of our salvation, it is our desire this morning to give glory to your name and to celebrate your love and your faithfulness to us. So receive our worship this day. Hear our prayers for the sake of the one who loves us and gave himself for us, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning we're going to be uh, sharing, it's the second message in this uh, series uh, called Set Free, and we're looking at the New Testament book of Galatians, the first chapter, and today we're going to be focusing beginning with verse 11, Um, and I want to tell you a story in the context of this message today, Um, but before I do that, I just want to remind us that Christianity is ultimately a religion about conversion. 
to put it in everyday language, it's about God turning our lives around and helping us to go in a new direction. Everything that we say and everything that we believe is built on one fundamental and revolutionary premise, and that is that we don't have to stay the same as we are. Our life can be radically changed by God. Conversion is a miracle that happens when the life of God intersects with our human personality. Once God enters the picture, our life will never be the same again. And until then, we may be religious, we may be a very good person, we may obey all of the rules of the church, but we have not been changed. Just being religious is one thing, being converted is something else entirely. It is the conviction that our long-held prejudices can be overcome, our lifetime habits can be broken, and our deeply ingrained patterns of sin can be erased. Conversion is the certainty that what we were does not determine who we are today, and what we are today does not determine who we will be in the future. We can be changed, we can be different, our lives can move in an entirely new direction. If we take the truth, that truth, away from Christianity, it ceases to be a supernatural religion. If the possibility of real change is gone, then we have nothing to offer, nothing to live by, but a set of rules. Can we be different people than who we are? Can we be moral people instead of being people who are drawn to sin? In and of ourselves, we can never make radical change happen. But with God, all things are possible. Now, of all the conversion stories in the Bible, none is greater or more profound than the change that occurred in a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Raised as a Jew, Jew tra trained as a rabbi, he became a violent persecutor of the early Christian church. He hated Christ. He hated Christ's followers, so much so that he did his best to destroy this new religion as if it were some dreaded virus. He was a first century terrorist who did his evil deeds in the name of the God of the Bible. But one day he met Jesus and his life was permanently transformed. So bad was his reputation that at first no one believed that the change was real. Word quickly spread that Saul the persecutor had come to Christ and that his life had changed. And over time, he proved to be genuine in his faith. But what happened to him made such an impact that the New Testament contains three separate accounts of his dramatic conversion. The first one is in Acts chapter 9, the second one in Acts chapter 26, and the third one here in Galatians. See, Paul's story begins with a statement about the source of his gospel preaching. And evidently the Judaizers, who were Jewish Christian converts who claimed to represent the apostles in Jerusalem, were attacking both Paul's apostleship and his message. In essence, they claimed that his message wasn't true, that he could not be trusted. And that raises an interesting question. How do we prove that we're trustworthy? How do we prove it to other people that we are trustworthy? Answer to tell our story and let that story speak for itself. And that's where Paul starts his defense in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on hum mere human reasoning. 
I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Now these verses emphasize two important truths. First, the gospel was not Paul's Paul's idea, it was God's idea. And second, because the gospel comes from God, it's true. Paul is merely the conduit for this truth, not its source. You see, Christianity does not spring from legends and dreams and myths. It's not the result of some scholarly arguments or some compromise arrived at an ancient church council. The gospel message is truly good news because it's God's good news. And with that established, Paul now proceeds to his own story and in the form of a three-point outline, his life before his conversion, how he came to Christ, and his life after coming to Christ. And when I end this message this morning, I'm going to close with two sentences, and I'm going to give you those sentences now and ask you to think about them while you're listening to this message. And here's the first one. We cannot understand Christianity without coming to grips with the truth of conversion. And secondly, a question, have you ever been converted? Here the, uh, here's the confession by St. Paul in uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my, uh, my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Now these verses tell us a chilling story. Before Paul came to Christ, he was perfectly happy in his career as a rising Jewish leader, an avid Christian hater. He felt no remorse for his persecution of the followers of Christ. In fact, he regarded it as his service to God. He had no desire to come to Christ. He felt no need for that in his heart. His religion satisfied him in every way. He saw no need for anything else. Was Paul interested in becoming a Christian? How many ways can we say no? He wasn't looking for Christ, but Christ was looking for him, as we'll see in a few moments. Only God could save a man like Paul, and as it turns out, that is exactly what he does. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it tells us that Saul, Paul's pre-conversion name, went from house to house, knocking on doors, asking the question, are there any Christians here? And if the answer was yes, he drug them out of their homes and he threw them into prison. You see, his heart was full of murderous rage against anyone who followed Jesus of Nazareth. And one day he's breathing out threats against the Lord's disciples as he was on his way to the city of Damascus where he was about to root out the fledgling Christian movement in that great city. And he had just approved of the stoning of a man by the name of Stephen. When other Christians uh, were also being put to death, Paul was the first one to cast his vote against them. In his mind, the best way to defeat Christianity was to kill all the Christians. In his enthusiasm, he had no peer, either as a student of the law of Moses or a fierce opponent of the church. He was a religious fanatic, he was a bigot, he was a zealot, he was a man wholly given over to the hatred of Christians. He would stop at nothing to prevent this new movement from spreading. Paul tells us his story this way because he wants us to understand that he wasn't looking for anything except more Christians to throw into prison. He had no sense of his need of salvation, no inner voice calling him to come to Christ. It was hard to imagine a more hopeless case. Why bother praying for a man like that? He'll never change, or so it would seem. 
He was totally convinced that he was right. He was convinced that all Christians were wrong. He hated Christianity. He loved Judaism. He was lost. He didn't know it. He enjoyed his life. He wasn't looking for something better. Now, we might sum it up by saying that he was on a collision course with eternal judgment. And when he, what he desperately needed but would not admit to was he, this strong dose of divine intervention. Paul paints the picture for us so black so that the brilliant light of the gospel can be clearly seen. Not everyone has a story like Paul's, but many of us do. I know some people who were far gone in sin before they came to Christ, and their testimony goes a little like this. You know, you think of a bad person, um, you don't know the half of it. I was really troubled, but then the Lord found me and cleaned up my life. There's no way to account for my life apart from God's amazing grace. And I know that there are people in every community and even in some of our churches who have spent time in prison, who have been involved in all sorts of immorality, people who have been on drugs, people who have been in and out of scrapes with the law. I often think it's a good thing that we don't know the naked truth about each other because if we did, some of us might choose to go to a different church or maybe live in a different community. There are all sorts of sinners who make up every community and even the body of Christ, but what we have in common is this. Despite our backgrounds, we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. We've been justified by his grace. We have been reconciled to God. We have been redeemed, restored, converted, and our lives radically changed. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, but, be but be even before I was born, God chose me, and he called me by his marvelous grace, and then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. I want you to focus for a moment on the word but that starts that sentence. This is the great interruption in Paul's life. All that happened in his life was because of this one little word. Paul was a sinner. He hated Jesus. He wanted to kill Christians. He wanted to destroy the church. He enjoyed being lost. He wasn't looking for a new life. He just intended to kill even more Christians. Note the change in subjects. When Paul talks about his former life, it's I, 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 totally absorbed. Then he talks about his conversion and the focus shifts. And now it is God who moves into the action. God came into Paul's life without waiting to be asked. While Saul was on this road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus just barged right in. He didn't ask permission because if he had, Saul would have certainly said no. He came where he wasn't wanted or expected and he took over the situation. Notice why he did it. God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace, and then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Jesus came to Paul because he wanted to come into Paul's life. He entered Saul's life without ringing the doorbell. This is God's saving grace. Maybe we think it's not fair, but here's the point. If God had waited for an invitation, Paul would never have been saved. Here's the lesson I think we can learn from all of this. Salvation begins with God, not with us. There's another uh, remarkable statement here. Paul says that God called him, in another translation it says, he called me from my mother's womb. It means that God was tracking him from the very beginning of his life. God had his eye on Paul while he was still in his mother's womb. While he was a toddler, God was watching his every step. During his rambunctious teenage years, God kept him in sight. During the long years of rabbinical training, God was calling him to salvation. Paul didn't know it. He didn't feel it. 
He was totally unaware of it. In fact, he couldn't see it all until after he came to Christ. And then he would look back and he would see God's fingerprints at every part of his life. God was on his trail. And when the time fully came, God reached down, kind of slapped him down on the Damascus Road and brought him into the kingdom. His whole life had been planned by God for just this moment. And nothing happened by accident. It was all part of God's plan. Now you may be thinking, doesn't that destroy our concept of free will? Not at all. I really believe that God gives us choices to make and he holds us accountable to those choices. And God doesn't go against our will. But God brought Paul to the place in his life where he freely chose Christ. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus that day, he was ready to respond. But God also does that for us. He overcomes our reluctance. He knocks down all of our excuses. He slowly but surely draws us to Christ. We aren't always aware of it. From our side, we might call it accepting Christ or believing in Christ or trusting Christ as our Savior. Sometimes we even say, I found the Lord. But just remember, if the Lord didn't find us first, we would never find him. And in the end, God gets all the the credit. That is certainly how Paul felt as he looked back on his amazing conversion. Now, verses 16 through 24 complete the story. When this happened, Paul said, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, and still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't even know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Now, Paul's emphasis in these verses seems to be on what he didn't do. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem to be trained by the apostles. He didn't start a preaching ministry. What did he do? He dropped out of sight for three years. We might have put him on Christian radio. We might have put him on the circuit of TV talk shows. We might have even had him write a book about his marvelous experience, but that wasn't God's plan. He spent three years in personal study and meditation. He went back then to Damascus, and he made a brief trip to Jerusalem to meet Peter, and then to Syria and some other uh, uh, cities where, uh, in, in areas where he could preach the gospel. In all of that, we see three new attitudes emerging, a new attitude toward other believers, a new attitude toward the gospel, and a new attitude toward the truth. He's now preaching what he once tried to destroy. Once he hated believers, now he seeks them out for fellowship. Once he hated the truth, and now he's living by the truth. And once he hated the gospel, now he's preaching the gospel. Once he was called Saul, now he's called Paul. He's the same man, but he's a new man. Everything's different. Once he was a terrorist, now he's an evangelist. And it is Jesus Christ who's made all the difference in his life. Now this passage ends on a wonderful note as Paul says that the churches in Judea, which he once terrorized in his pre-conversion days, recognized the amazing change in his life and they glorified God because of him. His life is pointing people to God. But that leads me to ask the simple and profound question of you. 
Is anyone glorifying God because of your life? Is your life pointing people to Jesus Christ? What message are you sending by the way that you are living your life? Now let me wrap up this message focusing on four uh, take-home truths. First, the Christian gospel comes from God, not from us. And this is hugely important because in a pluralistic society, a politically correct society that teaches us over and over again that all religions are basically the same and we all are going to the same place and there's no religious system that can be thought to be superior to any other, of course, this is nonsense even on the face of it, but many people accept it as truth. Paul's words in verses 11 and 12 point us in the right direction. The gospel is not the result of polling data or the work of a committee. It's not the same as you know, the gossip game where someone starts the sentence and it goes around the circle and comes back unknowable at the end. The gospel's not like that. It's based on historical fact. It's all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And these, are, these were events that didn't happen in secret. They, were, they are part of the historical record, and anyone can check them out. The gospel's true because it comes directly from God. Secondly, conversion is a pure miracle that depends on God alone. God takes responsibility for our salvation. He arranges the circumstances so that we can know him personally. Now, we rarely see that in advance, but looking back on our life a bit, we see how the hand of God graciously moved to draw us to himself. Conversion is not a 50-50 cooperative effort between us and God. John Wesley, from whom United Methodists traced their roots, talked about prevenient grace, the grace of God that's reaching out to us and drawing us to God long before we understand what, it's all, what it all means or is involved. So the ability to believe in Christ is a gift from God. Third, the worst sinner often makes the best saint. Note the word often, not every sinner comes to Christ. Regrettably, some do not. And because they don't come, their lives are not eternally saved. And there are many great saints of God who were raised in godly homes and never really openly or rebelled against God or anything, but it's still true that God seems to take delight in taking a ruthless sinner like Paul and profoundly changing their life. Such men and women bear the scars of their past, and they bring that baggage with them into God's family, but when God's work is done, those saints are some of the most powerful testimonies to a skeptical world. This week I ran across a sentence that said, God's, God does not recruit heroes. How true. God doesn't necessarily go after the mighty, the noble, the powerful. God isn't looking for the great individuals as the world counts greatness to, for his kingdom. God doesn't just go after big names, celebrities, pop to populate heaven. He, he takes ordinary folks like you and me. And he changes us. He cleans us up. He fixes our lives and he sends us out into service for the king. God, when God wants to recruit frontline service, servants uh, for the kingdom, he draws us to Christ and he saves us and he changes us and he puts us to work. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter five when he says that we were once powerless, ungodly sinners, even God's enemies, but then Christ died for us that we might be reconciled to God because God always changes enemies into friends. Now here's the last peace. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. 
Surely this is one reason why Paul's story shows up three times in the New Testament. If God could save somebody like Paul, he can save anyone. And that ought to encourage us, especially if we've been praying for a friend or a loved one uh, to come to Christ. You know, sometimes I think we get discouraged because our prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling. We pray for months, we pray for years. Doesn't seem to be any apparent result. But I encourage you not to despair. What we see is not the whole story. No one would have ever predicted Paul's conversion. Ten minutes beforehand, it seemed impossible. Five minutes beforehand, no one had a reason to expect that anything would be different. Ten seconds before that light broke that day on the Damascus Road, Paul's heart was as hard as ever, but then God showed up. So keep on praying, keep on sharing your faith, keep on believing, because you never know what God's going to do. I believe that there's no force in the world more powerful than the prayers of God's people. And the reason we pray is because Jesus is still in the life-changing business, and he still saves, he still converts, he still rescues men and women who are far from God. There is no case and no sin too hopeless for God. The words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are still true. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. The new life has begun. The story of Christianity is a story of twice-born people. So let me end this morning with the two sentences that I mentioned earlier. And the first one is, you cannot understand Christianity without coming to grips with the truth of conversion. And the second is the question, have you ever been converted? Let's pray. You may be here this morning and you may be um, a person who's grown up in the church. Um, You've been religious all your life. You've been a good person. You've obeyed all the rules. But truly, um, not sure if you've ever really been converted that your life has been changed by Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment. And if you want to make this prayer your own today, I invite you to just do this in your own mind and heart as you seek God in your own spirit. Father, I know that I have broken your laws and my sin has separated me from you. And I'm truly sorry. And now I want to turn away from my past sinful life toward you. Please forgive me. Help me to avoid sinning again. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and hears my prayer. And I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and to reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you and to do your will for the rest of my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.